We have to grasp that the biosphere is an absolute boundary that limits our behaviour. Then you say, okay, well, how do you get that biosphere imperative to made real in the practical functioning of humans? Put it into every constitution. Having got that in, then that's when change starts to happen, when action starts to happen. Hello. And welcome to the second series of the Hidden Power podcast called Pre-Flight Checklist. It's a useful analogy which we are using to think about getting the best out of our little lives on Spaceship Earth, using something that profoundly impacts our lives, but none of us ever really see, a constitution. In this series, we explore one by one each of the 26 principles that would govern a pleasant life through and at the far side of the current climate emergency. I'm Philip Tottenham, and my co-presenter is the author of these principles, Ed Straw. Hello, Ed. Hello, Philip. We're here, ready for our next principle that will see us into the glorious future. And this is principle number four. Would you like to read it out? A constitutional court adjudicates on the interpretation of the Constitution. Its decisions are binding. Okay, so this clearly shows how all these principles are somewhat interrelated. Yeah. I suppose the the interpretation of the Constitution, this is uh, more in relation to law making than, for example, law interpretation in in the the lower courts. Yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, there's a case in the criminal courts and the perpetrator, as it were, the person who found guilty appeals, then that appeal would be held within the criminal court jurisdiction. Two cases. One is that that decision in the criminal court impinges on an article in the Constitution that it would end up in the constitutional court. But more typically, the constitutional court is about has the constitution been applied particularly to acts of government? So we're talking laws, statutes, we're we're talking individual decisions, you know, are they following the constitution? This, in essence, is the highest authority that Mm -hmm. sits above the system of government. It sits above government, the second chamber, the various institutions of government, And it's acting on behalf of the citizens. So if we come back to principle number two, people and constitutional sovereignty, this is our referee. This belongs to us. Can you give me any sort of clear example of when a constitutional court might have been useful or might be useful? The classic one is where a government of autocratic inclination seeks to impose its view and its will upon the people. You know, it sort of becomes an elective dictatorship. And it, it, right. Now, if you've got a decent constitution, then the constitutional court would swing into action and it would say to government, terribly sorry, you can't do that. So mm-hmm. this prorogation of Parliament. Oh, that, yes. Uh, in, in 2019, at the end of 2019. Yeah. Johnson attempted in order to force through the Brexit thing and said, oh, Parliament's just getting in the way. It's a bloody nuisance. Even in a constitution as weak as ours, 
the Supreme Court in this particular case just drew the line and said, no, we have a parliament and that's where sovereignty resides. What is the story of Sally Clark and how does it pertain to this? Yeah, Um, so this brings us on to, you know, why do we need a specialist court? So I happen to be listening to a podcast sideways from the BBC And this is the case of a woman in Cheshire, a very successful solicitor, husband, two very young children, absolute tragedy that both of those young children, one after the other, not immediately, sequentially died. There was an expert witness brought in, a guy called Saroy Meadow, who basically said, well, the chances of this happening are one in 73 million. Hmm. Um, So, I mean, this was termed a statistical smoking gun. And the court that was hearing the case against Sally Clark was very much persuaded by this one in 73 million chance of this happening. Therefore, it must be murder. She was then put in prison. Sally Clark and her uh, solicitors appealed, took her to the appeal court, At that point, the judges said that they're not terribly interested in statistics. Mm. You know, essentially, this is a guilty person. The judges said that just took it that she was guilty and that was the end of it. Yeah, I mean, there's a view and I think it has some strength that they were sort of embedded in the wicked mother mythology and is another wicked mother and she was put away. And I mean, just to emphasize the point, she actually finally got out after three years. And four years later, I mean, essentially a broken woman, a broken person, she died. So I'm just a fantastic tragedy. Now, the point was made by other statisticians that when you get into probabilities, there's two things. One is, can you multiply these two together of one death and another death? Or are they actually independent? And therefore, you can't simply multiply to come up with one in 73 million. And the other point was what they call the prosecutor's fallacy, which is what is the chance of one person murdering two papers? The point about all of this, and and indeed, just to emphasise the point, so Roy Meadows was eventually struck off as an expert witness, Mm. um, which is one of the reasons she got out. But the point about this was the extraordinary ignorance of the judges about statistics and the importance of statistics. And they needed, none of them would have been trained in statistics, none of them Mm. would have had education or a grasp, um, which is more generally one of the great absences in much of the British establishment. But you need specialists. Now, the Constitution, you know, is something that's acting on our behalf. It's as much about how you get a system of governing to work as any deep political perspectives. And so you need people who understand and specialise in and focus on how you get a constitution to work. So getting back to our principle that the constitutional court adjudicates on the interpretation of the constitution and that its decisions are binding, what you're saying about the constitutional court is that it needs specialists. So in this case, it would have been a specialist interpreting the law in relation to statistics 
with at least a basic understanding of how statistics works and what is significant in the statistical analysis, yeah. as opposed to just banding around a number. What other specialisms are needed? I mean, right. I guess I mean, we also have the basic interpretation of the law. Well, yes, and what is a law? I mean, if you if you read a lot of the stuff about where does law come from, you'll find metaphysical, theological, philosophical, political, religious, ideological reasoning and components. Mm-hmm. But actually, if you think about this, this is all about how does government work and how does it work on behalf of the citizens and how does it do that well and a lot of this is about organization uh, and how organization works and of course as the theme of this entire podcast a lot of this is about systems thinking so you need people in that constitutional court who principally understand the reality, the practicalities of the way in which governments and systems of government work. Yeah, well, we were talking before about how there's something of a syndrome at higher levels of governance, where people who understandably are confident in their perspectives, it's it's precisely their competence and their confidence that prevents them from perceiving differences and, and um, nuances that perhaps other people, non-specialists, can see. And again, this reaches back to this question of diversity of perspective and having some kind of means for people to discuss these differences and variations of perspective in a way that a collective understanding can be arrived at. And I suppose that's where systems thinking has a lot to offer in terms of helping people who have a somewhat fixed perspective on things to open up their perspective. Exactly. And I mean, if you come at this with a generalized legal mindset, and one of the great challenges for every lawyer is that they think that every aspect of life is amenable to a legal solution. Um, yeah. Where- you know, pretty obviously it's not. There's rather more to it. You get traditions of understanding which are shaped by, all of us are shaped by our education and our experiences. And as you rightly say, we're looking at a need, a desire to open up diversity of perspectives to challenge our thinking and to Mm. approach a lot that comes through court in different ways. Well, I suppose it's about getting closer to actually being right and getting away from assuming that that you're right when you're in in that position of power. Yeah, and, and assuming that if you just apply a standard framework of legal thinking, that you can get to the answer in every particular case. Some of the cases that have come before constitutional courts in various places Germany, South Africa, and so on and so forth. I mean, a recent one um, is on data and Mm. privacy around data. And again, if you've got a sound constitution that addresses that issue, then it gives the constitutional court the opportunity to say, without there needing to be an act of parliament or an act of Congress or whatever it might be, 
Well, actually, you know, we own our data. The great advantage of this is that, of course, at present, as soon as any law of that nature came before a parliament, there would be massive lobbying by the social media companies to say it's going to be dreadful and we can't do that and find all sorts of reasons. Whereas the constitution with the constitutional court is actually sitting on top of that and saying, no, no, we've got a number of principles by which we're going to live our lives. I I suppose it takes the argument out of it by having it or a certain element of it predetermined. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting because I suppose this has been going on in Australia recently and what looks like Australia versus Facebook has turned out to be, to some extent, uh, Rupert Murdoch versus Facebook and an attempt to sort of grab an income from Facebook. Then again, raises the question, okay, so what would you want in a constitution to prevent both of them, if you like, trying to claw out their excessive share of the cake? And, you know, on the one hand, how do you control social media? Who does own the data? Mm. On the other hand, you know, what is a free press? I think Murdoch has effective control of 70% of the press in Australia. Wow. That's not a free press. That's almost as much of a controlled press as you get in Russia. But there, I mean, you'd think that there'd be an antitrust case there. Once the tech giants came along, the competition authorities in the States, A, were preferentially lobbied, but secondly, I think they took a view, well, we're now talking about USA Inc. here, and these tech giants are going to take over the world, so we're quite happy if they have a monopoly locally, and indeed, they then have a monopoly in the world. Mm. Again, you know, if you put that in the Constitution as to what defines a monopoly and the way in which antitrust authorities are established, which maintains their independence from the political system, then you have an opportunity for the constitutional courts to act on behalf of the citizens and say, no, 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 regulator, uh, you've got that wrong through this process that's called judicial review. You made a great point when we were talking about this before, and I suppose, again, it sort of taps into the systems thinking aspect of this, that you have these emergent properties. And if you have a properly functioning constitutional court, the outcomes include trust in government, a fully functioning democracy, and and a flourishing democracy. And you mentioned in particular Denmark um, Mm. as being quite a good example of this. Mm. And I suppose that, for example, with uh, antitrust, particularly in America, but also clearly in, in Australia and Britain as well. This is what happens when you don't have that, that with effective mechanisms, those things would have been nosed off before they became an issue. Yeah. Does the constitution matter or has everyone gone to sleep listening to this podcast because <laughs> that word is coming up? I often say the C word, you get immense tension, you know, shock, horror and all the rest mm. of it. This particular C word, people go to sleep. We would all be well advised to stop going to sleep and Mm. get interested in the nature of constitution because it can set the tone and then particularly it sets the way things work can make a huge difference to people's lives, to 
inequality, and particularly then if we go back to the first principle about putting the biophysical world at the centre, then it means we would not be acting 30 years late Mm. in relation to the climate and biodiversity and all the other emergencies that have now piled up upon us. It is a discipline on government and politicians and big institutions and companies and all the rest of it, but it's also a discipline on ourselves Mm. uh, that says, well, look, you know, we've thought about this, we've agreed what's going to go into the constitution. We agree, you know, yeah, it it may cause us to change what we are doing and the way in which we behave and live and those sorts of things. But we recognise that without the life support system that the biophysical world provides, we recognise collectively that, well, we wouldn't be here. Basically, uh, what I was looking to lead on to is models of where this is working well. It's a sort of slightly uh, odd situation at first sight in that South Africa, uh, mm. in that obviously as, as a totality, that country isn't working well. But I think I may have said before that precisely because the constitution was so well-founded and that it has four separate courts one of which is the Constitutional Court, which sits at the apex of the entire system of governing. Precisely because of the strength of their Constitutional Court, it has managed to stop South Africa becoming a completely elective dictatorship. And incidentally, if you want to have a look at what that court does, you can get a live stream on YouTube, which is quite an education Germany is another good example of a constitutional court. I've mentioned the data privacy. They have had quite an interesting cases coming before them as to what extent does the EU and the European Central Bank and before that the European Monetary Union apply to a country? Does the EU's rules override Germany's rules and so on? And where does the balance in all of that lie? We have tended almost exclusively to basically say, well, the rulings of the European Court apply here. That's Mm. it. Bad luck. We're going to follow them. Austria is another interesting example. And you'll find examples around the world Most of these constitutions are still founded on principles which go back, you know, 100, 200 years. And every constitution in the world needs a really thorough understanding. Who who would do that? Is that for the constitutional court to look at as well? Or is that more of a a governmental? Well, that's a very interesting question, you know, who would do it? I mean, typically in the past, you you know, the founding fathers in Mm. the U.S., put together a group of the powerful, but also, to be fair to them, a group of the thoughtful who were going, how can we construct the US, particularly having come from European jurisdictions and, you know, they'd wanted to get away from them. So how can we construct something that works better, a lot better? So I suppose since the constitution outlasted the founding fathers, it is a bit of a difficult question when thinks of the uh, US Supreme Court and all the problems that have come from the politicization of each appointment. You know, the 
biggest problem with the Supreme Court in the US is, I mean, essentially the political appointments. One of the cardinal principles in a constitution is the separation of powers, separation Mm. of powers between what's called the legislature, the executive on the one hand, and the judiciary on the other. If you come back to the court is there to make judgments, including on the way in which governments have acted, then if you've got political appointments, then you're muddying the waters. And so successfully over the years, the Supreme Court has become more and more a creature, really, of the Republican Party. Because the way in which it's done and the increased partisanship and increasingly presidents looking to nominate and Congress is looking to approve justices who are in favour of the economic uh, neoliberal status quo or indeed in favour of the Republican Party. So one of the fundamentals that are required is that separation. So you should have for your constitutional court an independent appointments system. But does this go back to principle two then, that this sort of devolves from the people? Exactly. If you've got people and constitutional sovereignty and then the rule of law, well, let's ponder and say, well, would the best way of constructing this constitutional court be to elect it? The way justices are appointed in this country across the board is through a thing called the Judicial Appointments Commission, which does a pretty independent job. And politics, by and large, doesn't get involved. The problem that we have is it tends to appoint in its own kind. So you don't get the diversity and the broadening. Obviously, if you have four separate courts and separate appointments commissions, and you build into the constitution ways of ensuring diversity in those appointments, then you would get the sort of result that we want to get. So again, we always come back to this question of how is this going to become a reality? And then you come back to, uh, you know, why we're just going back to the US. um, I do think that the quality of their constitution meant that they were streets ahead in democracy Hmm. and streets ahead of uh, the way in which their system of governing worked and its effectiveness, which meant that the 20th century was America's century. But it's now got into a logjam because the process for changing the Constitution, albeit there have been 26 amendments, but quite a long time ago, the last one, we got into a situation where the Constitution has just got completely jammed up. What was interesting in relation to the Biden election, there was an article in Time recently which described the way in which a coalition of left activists and big business, which wasn't just the sort of liberal um, so-called tech giants, uh, but was a range of business that had got completely pissed off with Trump. Mm. That combination piled in to do a variety of things. One was to ensure that when it came to social media wars and fake news and all the rest of it, that there was sufficient going in on their side to at least rebut the lies in that direction. 
More importantly, they put a lot of effort into voter registration and voter turnout because Republicans typically have been gerrymandering to try and prevent people typically who were going to vote Democrat and ensure that people are going to vote for Republicans. So this coalition put a lot of effort into voter registration, particularly it put a lot of effort into postal votes to ensure that people could get their votes. And you may well have noticed in the election now there was a massive delay in the result because they were counting so many postal votes. The point of that story is that civil society in various forms us and its partners, as it were, can actually get change made and can actually get things done if we decide that we're going to get them done. And it's the same with constitutions. It's a hell of an effort, but do you have an alternative Mm. to putting in a hell of an effort? Because if you don't, then we're going to sit with what we've got. When we were talking about this, I think last week, you gave a great history of Britain's lack of a constitution and how it's affected us. In fact, I think we mentioned last week in the the podcast that our constitution is effectively what the Queen in Parliament enacts is law. Why don't you just quickly walk me through the history of that from Harold Wilson through Thatcher and Blair to where we are now? There's a bit more to it than that. Up to Thatcher... I mean, there's all sorts of things. There's habeas corpus and the Magna Carta and King John in the 1200s. And these things are still on the statute book. And and actually, quite a lot of them are about rights. But there were a lot of gentlemen's agreements. And those gentlemen's agreements held and, you know, were okay. I mean, no one would have dreamed of trying to prorogue Parliament. There was a real appreciation that Parliament was... Uh, supreme in the model that we have. And so I Um, suppose that also points to an appreciation of norms and a respect for tradition and and the existing culture. And and, and indeed, the city of London, the financial markets worked on that basis as well. And if you can get trust into an organisation based on values, that's a far more efficient way of running anything Mm. than having to have a pile of rules and processes and policies and bureaucracy and God knows what. Much more effective if you can do that. Thatcher came along. Thatcher, you know, wanted to revolutionise what was going on, remake Britain, etc., etc., and just pushed and pushed and pushed at the boundaries of those gentlemen's agreements and started to ignore quite a few of them. Blair came in. But just before we get to Blair, actually, I think it's worth mentioning that point about neoliberalism that well I suppose first of all the liberalism is liberalization of markets and big business there's no liberalism for for people on the ground as such but secondly that there was this sort of change in culture from a culture that respected certain sort of boundaries and and virtues to the culture whatever you can do to gain profit yeah, I well, mean, it's the Milton Friedman thing, wasn't it? The- yeah, interesting to compare the way in which governments have increasingly behaved and increasingly any sense of ethics go out the window. So in business, up until Milton Friedman came along and announced that you know the, the only company's duty was to make money for the shareholders, up to that point, there were ethics in 
all business. And although it was legal, there are certain things you wouldn't do because they were antisocial. They weren't good for society. And there are certain things you would do in terms of just down to the electricity companies, if you like. You know, are we, are we going to not put a load of pylons all over the place? Are we going to put them underground at our cost? So they would behave well. And then it became, well, we'll do things but within the law. So we'll, we'll act within the law. Then it became, well, actually, we'll basically do whatever, so long as the cost of it being illegal and the penalty, if you like, that arises from that is less than the profit. And, you know, we got to the position where you do anything that you can get away with. And I think politics in many countries um, and, 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 you know, the looser the constitution, the more manipulable the constitution, the further the boundaries have been pushed. So still in some European countries, particularly, um, those boundaries are constrained to an extent and so limit that sort of bad behaviour. So that's interesting. There seems to be a sort of parallel path between a departure from ethics in business, a departure from power in, in politics, and a kind of parallel departure from truth in media. I, th- I think you're you're absolutely right. And um, well, we've been talking about the Adam Curtis uh, series, yes, see, and these big shifts in thinking. And you could also take it higher than that if you like, and say, well, you know, essentially we've all got trapped in this monetary system, this global monetary system, which operates simply to make money stop you know there is there is nothing else that it does and indeed it operates simply and gets more and more manipulated and you would have seen this you know prior to the 2008 crash where we're going to make money out of giving mortgages to people who can't possibly afford to repay them we've convinced ourselves that this is all right i mean it's complete lunacy idiocy but the capacity of people in power to delude themselves when there's a lot of money hanging on the end of it, the capacity of people in power just to exercise a lot of power because they like the power is enormous. Here we are, right, how are we going to control this? Well, if you think about football Mm. and how did that arise, and I can't remember whether we've talked about this one or not, but, you know, started in Wales and one village had a had a, a sort of football. Oh, that's right. We did actually talk about that in a previous episode. Yeah, yeah it was. And it was chaotic, and and you you bring in the rules, not not rules for rules' sake, but rules that make the game better, make the game fairer, make the game more interesting, make the game so people don't die, who are particularly relevant to constitutions today, and you produce the beautiful game. And it's exactly where we are uh, with constitutions. And, of course, if you're going to have a beautiful game, then you need a referee who is really, really good. Um, Right, and that's the constitutional court. Well, that's a very good place to finish. Shall we, in anticipation of next week, would you like to give us a quick preview of what principle number five is? Principle number five? Well, diversity of lifestyles, um, and I use the word lifestyles in its broadest sense, but all lifestyles are accepted 
within the constraint of not harming others or the biosphere. Beautiful. Ed, thanks. That was oh, a good episode. You. Quite a long episode, actually. I might uh, put that down. Yeah. But, uh, yes. Great. Yeah. yeah.